Hello and welcome back to Millennial Ag, where agriculture is always on tap and no topic is off limits. Thanks for joining us today, your co-hosts, Valine Likely and Catherine Lotspeech. Listeners, we are very nearly to the 1st of May. Um, we're two months into quarantine, um, four months into coronavirus hitting U.S. shores, and, you know, the fallout is only just beginning to be known um, economically, health-wise, um, and in our agriculture industry in general. And over the last few weeks, we have brought you several different viewpoints of how the pandemic is affecting different sectors of agriculture. And this week, we're excited to bring you another one um, that we haven't touched on yet. And um, we're, we're looking forward to this perspective and, and um, some, nor- some more insight into what's going on in the animal protein supply chain. Yeah, it's, I guess I've been a little bit avoiding the topic just because it's something that's near and dear to my heart, and I think it needs some light shed on it too, but as beef producers, we often want to just say, everything's okay, we can, we can get through this, um, but we're taking a hit too, um, just like everybody else's, and I um, have brought on J.W. Wood, who is general manager for the Boise Valley Feeders, and he's also the feeder council chair for the Idaho Cattle Association. So I thought his perspective in the feedlot realm of things would be the perfect person to address the animal protein sector. With that, J.W., do you want to introduce yourself and your background? <laughs> oh, good. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat with you guys this afternoon. and um, yeah. I uh, I grew up on a cow-calf operation in Hawaii. I went to Colorado State and uh, studied animal science and ag business. And uh, upon graduation, kind of started in the feed yard world. Uh, worked for JBS Five Rivers uh, right out of college and um, worked at their yard in Ulysses, Kansas and uh, Curtis, Colorado. And uh, was in the corporate office for a couple of years and then came over here to Agri-Beef um, about five years ago and uh, was up at our operation in Moses Lake, uh, our feed yard up there, and then uh, been down here at Valley Feeders uh, over three years now. I didn't realize you're a ram, so I have to plug the Go Rams yeah, <laughs> in there before we get started because there's a few of us in Idaho right now. So, so JW... Um, You know, we've heard about milk dumping, we've heard about, um, you know, specialty crops being plowed under, and I think today, especially, the news is really hitting that the animal protein supply chain is taking it really, really hard right now due to the effects of the pandemic. You know, we're we're hearing about hogs being euthanized, um, you know, eggs being broken so that that those fertilized eggs don't become um, layer broiler hens. What's, What's happening in the beef industry? What's What's it look like there from a market perspective, economy? Yeah, it, it's really, really challenging. Um, you know, fortunately, our our side of the uh, uh, the protein business, uh, just because cattle are what they are, that it's a little more flexibility. Um, and so, uh, you know, we're not having to do any of those extreme measures. And I, I can't imagine how difficult that must be for you know, hog producers or poultry producers to go through that because, you know, any of us at NAG, our, our whole livelihood is just about trying to deliver this crop or product in the best way we can. And so then to have to go and do that just has to be almost heartbreaking. Um, that's, you know, not what we're visible. None of us signed up to do that. So 
Um, but on our end and, you know, the feed yard and the cow calf deal, like we, we've got some flexibility. We, as long as we've got feed around, we can, there's no reason for us to take any of those extreme measures. You know, I don't foresee that we will. Um, I've heard of some feed yards, you know, maybe slowing things down and not uh, feeding cattle as hot of a diet, uh, you know, just so that they kind of maintain their weights or um, and, and aren't getting too big or too fat. So, uh, you know, I've heard that. I don't know how much of that's really going on, but um, it, it, it'll be a challenge, you know, to get things. There's just, just came out in the news today about, uh, you know, mandates to keep uh, processing plants open. And so we'll try and do that as best we can. And, you know, as long as we've got labor uh, there to, to make production happen, I think we'll keep after it and uh, try and slug through this as best we can. Yeah, it's it's just crazy to wrap my mind around the last two months of everything that's happened in the whirlwind and the adjustments that are coming. Um, so not only are the packing plants dealing with the COVID virus and staffing and labor issues, they're also have got to figure out where to go with the meat too. Are you guys seeing a supply shift as well with some of the restaurants being closed? Absolutely. I mean, that's, um, you know, we're a smaller uh, processor. We don't have uh, the size and scale that some of the other, uh, you know, Tice JBS might. So we play heavily in the branded program, you know, restaurants and uh, food services is definitely who, uh, you know, we kind of focus our, our package to um, our, our, you know, we try to off, we try to differentiate ourselves as a smaller producer and be more quality centric with branded programs and those do best at a restaurant. Um, and when restaurants aren't up, that's a challenge. Uh, you know, food or, uh, retail obviously has been really good. And so, um, you know, we getting a lot of orders. Uh, every time you go to the grocery store, you see the meat counter and it's, it's empty. It's as empty as it's been in a long time. So that's, that's a good thing. Um, but, uh, there's probably more margin, um, in the food service side, uh, so that, that's a little bit of a challenge. Um, we have an e-commerce business too, um, our uh, snakeriverfarms.com. And so that's sort of our, uh, we call it our ABC platform. And so that's direct to uh, consumers. And that's been, I mean, they're just, uh, I was talking to a guy the other day whose wife works there and, and she's answering customer calls that were logged weeks ago. Um, and so that business is just booming. Uh, which is good. Uh, but yeah, so just kind of a shifting dynamic in terms of um, the supply chain. Are you able to switch over the products pretty easily or is it like a production line switch? Like in dairy, for example, we talked about like the cheese and the powdered milk. You know, it, it's a very specific market and to switch that over to fluid milk is really challenging. Do you guys see that in the beef side of things at all? You know, I, I don't spend a ton of time in the plant, but my understanding, there's not a ton of flexibility there. Um, and, you know, most of our products are, are pretty well specified. Um, they have very um, stringent decks that they need to cut everything to. So um, we're, we try not to waver off of that too much. Um, you know, but, we you know, maybe make a, a small small change we're not selling a whole lot of primals right now so maybe we're making more vap if possible 
um, more value-added product uh, type things. But there's not a ton of flexibility there today. Um, but you know, something like this sure makes you can set out to be more dynamic. I think in in the in the plant and on the chain. I was just going to ask. Um, you know, this this pandemic is certainly giving a whole new blush to. Um, flexibility or the the need for flexibility in our supply chain and our processing um, activities. So do you think that this is going to drive a massive amount of change um, in that regard? You know, our our processors or or, um, other actors in the supply chain going to try and become more flexible, more, you know, more nimble to be able to switch, switch their product lines? Or where do you see that going in the next little while? You know, I'm not totally for certain. Um, it, it'll be interesting to see. Certainly things will be different, though, going forward. Um, I think, you know, the, the uh, processing side of the industry has been hard-pressed for labor uh, for a while now. And so, you know, maybe there's this even more uh, emphasis on automation and things like that um, to help alleviate some of the labor issues that we we've experienced. And then I think as you build that automation, maybe that builds in some flexibility. Um, you know, on the feed yard side specifically, though, uh, the only dynamic, you know, we haven't talked about market prices yet, and I'm sure we will, but obviously that's been a volatile train wreck. Um, and so on that side, you know, maybe maybe you see more hedging and more risk management tools that are put out there. Um, you know, historically the cow-calf producer hasn't had to do a whole lot of that. Um, you know, some of them, some, some operators will, and some of the progressive ones get pretty in-depth in that. But, uh, you know, your average ranch probably not trade a lot of futures on his calf crop. And so maybe that's something um, that changes. But uh, everyone's appetite for, for written pain, I think, is going to be pretty full here. So, um I'm sure that'll spur some change in that regard. Jumping off your train wrecks situation with prices, can you just explain to listeners what the train wreck really looks like and and kind of a little bit of why it's such a train wreck? Yeah, I mean, uh, if, if you look at the, from the start of the year, we were trading, you know, the April contract for live cattle was, you know, almost 128, I don't think it touched 130. Um, so, you know, we've lost uh, over 40 bucks, um, which is just an instrumentable uh, number. It's, it's really bad. Last year during the plant fire, um, you know, I think we lost maybe 15 or 20 in a real short period of time. Um, and, and the really hard thing to stomach is usually sim, uh, seasonally, this is a, a bullish time of year. Uh, and so, you know, April, typically there's not a whole lot of cattle to harvest. You're getting re- ready for grilling season. And so things start to really take off. And, you know, usually you have a high somewhere in here between April and May and sometimes even June. And so to experience what we've experienced right now is just, so counter seasonal and such a huge drop off in such a quick period of time that there was just nothing that anyone could do really to stop the the fall. Um, and then the really hard part is, you know, part way down is that 
you don't even want to lock in prices because you need the side if the market rebounds um, to kind of recover some of your losses. So it's just such a challenge. Um, you know, meanwhile, on the food service side, the the, uh, the not the food service, but the uh, cutout side, uh, there's been all kinds of wild changes there too. And I haven't seen real closely what that looks like, but you know, they're adding 30, 40 bucks to the cutout every week. And so on one end, you know, the market's roaring down to the bottom on the other end, it's ripping up. And so it's just a really confusing time uh, for producers. I think confusing <laughs> sums it up in a nutshell because like our heads are just spinning, especially talking with you and talking with guests on the last couple episodes, our heads are just spinning on what's even to come, where, where have we been, where are we going, how do we prepare, do we prepare, do we ride this out? Um, so I, and there's just so much noise and uh, anxiety and like, so it, it, we, we should probably touch on too, like it's really, the first couple of weeks were really just for the crew, you know, like the guys at work and you feel for them and they're worried about their families and their health and their well-being and, um, you know, the good thing about ag is we're, we're fairly well insulated in terms of job security right now. Like that's that we need as many bodies as we can. And so, you know, we're not having to worry about unemployment and things like that with families, but you know, their, their spouses might be. And then if they're coming to work, um, you know, levels of exposure, I mean, we, uh, right off the bat, you know, try to, uh, be fairly progressive and, um, hoping guys get home early or soon so that they could, you know, take care of things at home and, you know, people's uh, schools and daycares are getting cut left and right and trying to figure out things there. You know, we try to institute policy that says, Hey, if you've got a fever or a cough, you need to go home immediately, uh, get a doctor's note to come back. We try to modify the workspace so that, you know, we're maintaining social distancing, uh, buying thermometers, but, Good luck buying a thermometer right now. You <laughs> have to dig you through your first aid kit to find a um, fever yeah. strip or something at this point, I think. Yeah, nobody wants to use the kind of thermometers that you use on cattle, that's for sure. No, no, we've offered. <laughs> Nobody's taking you up on that, huh? Uh, they're like, oh, I don't have a fever. <laughs> So, you know, there's been, like you said, I love that phrase that you said, a lot of noise surrounding this, um, the pandemic, the food supply, everything. That's just the perfect phrase for it. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, Tyson, just the last couple of days, took out several full page ads in large metropolitan newspapers warning against, um, you know, a shortage of animal protein in the supply chain. And up till now, we really haven't heard that from anybody. You know, there's been a lot of assurances from the industry as a whole that we've got plenty of food stockpiled. We're going to be good, you know, for a year or something like that. To have the CEO of Tyson come out and say something like that, what are your thoughts on that um, and and about beef specifically? Do you agree? Do you have a different perspective? You know, they they probably got a lot to feel on that sort of thing than I do. I mean, I, I was as surprised as anyone, I think, to see that um, sort of message come out. Like, it's very rare. I can say that the industry is kind of funny in that regard. Is they're usually kind of behind in the shadows, it feels like, just doing what they can to fill the um, meat space. Uh, 
So it was, it, it's interesting someone would come out and be that vocal. And, um, you know, they get a ton of pressure from, uh, especially right now, producers and feed lots and stuff about price things. And um, so, yeah, it, it's weird that they would uh, be so vocal about something like that. I, I don't know. I don't know what to make of it. What, what do you guys think? <laughs> Crickets? <laughs> That's about what we think about it. Um, I think it, the miss, I guess, I'm as confused as anybody about it because I think we have enough food in the supply chain. We might have to switch buying habits or um, process it a little differently. I'm confident that we'll have beef or chicken or pork available to purchase. It just might have to be frozen. It might not be the fresh. We might have to get a little innovative, but I don't, the fear behind that really is scares me, I guess. And it's just weird that, you know, right, wrong, or indifferent, the president gets a lot of flack for some of the flammatory things, you know, um, for a, a big CEO like this to come out and kind of stoke a fire like that is, it's just, it's just different. I don't know. Um, I, I was surprised that, like I said, that someone would come out and say those things as um, publicly as, as they did. Yeah, I agree. And to, to offer a problem and no solutions surrounding it um, was pretty, pretty interesting um, and a little disheartening, honestly. You know, we, we tend to have a little bit of mistrust in, in the big packers or the corporations anyway. Um, and I don't think that this has really helped anybody feel much better about the situation at hand. And, you know, I need, I need to dig a little bit deeper into it. I don't know. I don't know if what he's saying is true or not. Again, back to the noise comment, you know, it's, it's hard to tell. You really have to search out and figure out for your own self and, and discern what is, what is true and what is, you know, fluff. Yeah. And it's so confusing again, because, you know, if he's really doing a good job of being the canary in the coal mine about this deal, then we'll look back on this in a month and be like, man, should have really bought more meat when that Tyson guy came out. (laughs) But, uh, um, I mean, either either way, you don't really want to, you know, set off a fuse to have everyone go hit the, the meat counter, you know, just as hard as they're already doing it. But I don't know. It'll be interesting to see. There's no doubt that, uh, I mean, the USDA does a great job of collecting all sorts of data, right? And it's shown that week over week, we're just not harvesting much right now. So that'll be a challenge for sure. But yeah, uh, how big of one remains to be seen for sure. But it is a great, like we talked about earlier, it's a great opportunity for direct-to-consumer marketing and an opportunity to do our specialty meats and branding and just sell it directly to the consumer. And I think as much as it's frustrating on those packers, those big packers sometimes, I think it also provides opportunity to be innovative and provide specialty products directly to the consumer. If nobody else wants to go to the grocery store to buy beef, I'll show up at your doorstep with it kind of thing. Yeah. And, and that's been like, it's really fun. Our, our at snakeriverfarms.com deal, like they'll provide everything from uh, dry age product to, um, you know, just uh, high choice type stuff. So uh, it, and I'm sure you guys are the same way too. Like during this whole deal, like it's amazing all the different ways we've been cooking lately. You know, it's kind of fun and creative in that regard. I never thought I'd real estate so many different ways within one week, but um. <laughs> 
that's that's another thing that'll be interesting to see what comes out of this is the change in consumer behavior as far as what they purchase for cuts you know what becomes more available um new dynamic and and how we switch our eating habits and cooking habits as well um to say nothing of of eating at home obviously like 90 percent more than we have been in the last 20 years but figuring out how to cook different cuts and and get comfortable with it well where do we or where do you see us going in the next two months and then maybe a year or do you even have an outlook on on where we're going i really don't and i would be uh hubris to think I did, I think, because like you started this deal off with is two months ago, we were, you know, we thought, hey, we had a mild winter, feed yard performance is good, we're, you know, market dynamics look good, you know, let's, I don't know, there's a lot of people in the marketplace that were bullish, um, and so, you know, talk about turning that upside down. Uh, the the one thing I feel certain about is there there will definitely be change. I think people's appetite for risk, whether it's market risk or just even working with other people, like um, going to a restaurant, even right, is like these. That industry is going to be severely fractured. I feel like for for a long time. We haven't talked about export markets yet, but you know, if, if restaurants aren't in the EU or in Asian countries or anything like that, still, I mean that. That is not good for, for our business or industry. Do I think consumer spending habits change and stuff too? I mean, you'd have to think that, you know, that that'll play a factor too, is that if, if uh, the economy slows down, if jobs um, dry up and unemployment continues to skyrocket, it's, it'll be, uh, yeah, the next two months, the next two years, and it'll be quite a challenge. Plus, it's an election year. Oh, my gosh. Yeah, all kinds of things. Yeah, throw that added fun in there for sure. Yeah. I just thought of that now. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> it's an interesting thing. Um, this pandemic has certainly brought down a lot of that kind of noise. You know, there's no in-person campaigning and no rallies and things like that. And um, just from my own my own point of view, I feel that's a little bit refreshing. <laughs> To not be inundated with ads yet is, is fine. Right. Right. Absolutely. Um, another question JW I have is, do you think that this is going to drive, you know, the sudden drop in the market, the, the really huge shift in consumer behavior? Do you think that this is going to drive consolidation um, on the feeder side? And I know, I mean, we talk a lot about consolidation on the packer side, but what about the feeder side? That's a that's a great question. Um, I don't I don't know if it'll drive uh, consolidation in terms of who owns the cattle. So the one thing I can say right now is that um, you know we're in the feed yard and the amount of customers that we have uh, calling and wanting pen space is really high. Right, a lot of these guys don't want to let loose of their calf crop um, and want to try and rebound, and so that. That part is good because, again, that that is adding more players into the space and making the uh, marketplace more dynamic. So, uh, as far as that's concerned, I think that's a positive. Now, if prices rebound, though, you know, feeder cattle are worth more. Then, obviously, I think that kind of goes back to, um, you know, less of uh, the cow calf guy participating in the feeder sector. Fair enough. Is having all our feed yards 
at maximum capacity or close to right now, is that is that going to cause other issues in a couple months when they're all ready to harvest? Or are we able to spread those out for processing and supply? Yeah, I mean, what's challenging too is if, if your yard is not wanting to participate in the market right now because of the lack of profitability. Um, so say, for example, you're a 100,000 head yard and you decide you're just not going to own anything right now because you can't fathom owning a $400 head loser. Um, so you, you stay out and then you're not placing things and then the fall comes around and all of a sudden, you know, the packer calls and says, Hey, uh, we need cattle. We'll pay for them, you know? And they're like, well, we don't have any on feed because you know, 180 days ago they weren't profitable to own. So like, that's what I think will be really interesting is on that end when we work through this glut in the supply chain is, because, and I don't know, maybe that we'll place more than we think, but um, if there's a gap there, that'll be a challenge. And then to your point is, you know, once we, once either pen space frees up because we're getting fat cattle shipped or because we decide to get into the market, like that'll, that'll be pretty volatile. I think when we start bidding on cattle at the same time. That's interesting. Um, I guess kind of on the same topic, but diving a little different, um, on our last couple episodes, specifically dairy and the specialty crops, they were they were trying to encourage the American consumer to buy more produce, buy more milk, and buy local to support the economy and boost so that they didn't have to plow or dump. Are we saying the same thing in the beef industry or because the packers are backed up a little bit, are we holding off or what do we tell our consumers right now? Oh, man. I mean you always want to tell them to pay more for beef, I think, but uh, whether that's possible or not, I mean, I I think the processor would would harvest as many as possible right now if they had the workforce available. Um, But if if they've got, you know, people getting sick and um, putting their employees in jeopardy, uh, you know, they've got to make a really tough decision, I guess, from an economic perspective, but probably, an okay decision from a moral perspective to say, we need to close this down and get cleaned up and get everyone healthy before we bring them back to work. So um, I don't know that, that that's a huge challenge. And um, you know, there's been a lot of uh, news about that too lately, right. With processing plants, maybe not pulling the trigger as quickly as we need to, or, um, and I'm sure there's things that are, much more complicated that are in the news about that whole situation, but um, that, that'll continue to be a challenge, I think. Yeah, I think there's lots of challenges um, yet to come to to be overcome and, and to keep an eye out while we're still trying to just um, muddle through the mess that we've got on a day-to-day basis right now. So, um, JW, we thank you for coming on this week and joining us to talk about a tough topic that has, has hit the news hard in the last couple of weeks. Is there any last parting words or anything you want to tell our listeners or the American consumers when it comes to the feeders and the packers? No, just that, I mean, I really appreciate it. It's really challenging right now. It's really uh, scary to come to work some days. And and the fact that, you know, a lot of people in the sector keep doing it day over day, you know, this isn't uh, the most profitable side of the industry. These aren't the highest paying jobs. And for these people to, um, 
be able to make that sacrifice and continue to produce, uh, you know, one of the highest valuable, um, best tasting proteins is, is really cool. And, you know, we don't always, uh, look at ourselves as real essential, you know, but if there's ever been a time, it's, it's right now. So it's cool to, to be a part of that and, you know, very grateful for all those guys that are doing that. And, you know, of course, we're nothing though still compared to the first responders and uh, medical teams that are out there battling this stuff too. So. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us. Um, we're, we're excited to have you. We wish you, your family and your, your employees, the very best of luck moving forward through this. And, uh, um, hope to have you back on Millennial Lag in, in better times sometime in the future. Yeah, and where can, um, if listeners do want to purchase beef from Snake River Farms, what's the best way to do that? Yeah, snakefarms.com. Uh, it's really delicious. I promise you won't be disappointed. Uh, we've got uh, our, our Wagyu product, you know, which is all uh, minimum prime. We have our double R product, uh, which is you know, our upper choice um, They've got tomahawk ribeyes, they've aged uh, fillets, and oh man, uh, you'll you'll fill up if you go on there for sure. So, um, yeah, appreciate uh, being on. Thank you guys so much, and uh, yeah, hope to talk to you again soon. Perfect. Well, you you got me drooling, and I think I'm gonna go throw a steak on the grill because I have had Snake River Farms before, and it's it's pretty dang delicious. So. Thank you listeners for tuning into this week's episode of the Millennial Ag Podcast. Uh, Listen past this episode for our upcoming trailer on mental health in May. um, We'll be kicking off May 1st with a series and we want you all to tune into that as well. So thank you. What is the most unacknowledged issue in agriculture today? Stress and anxiety. Mental health. Mental health. Mental health. Without a doubt, mental health. Absolutely, mental health. Isolation, poor market conditions, legacy pressures. It's no secret that the American agriculturalist is under a great deal of stress, even during the best of times. By and large, the agriculture industry hasn't experienced the best of times for the last several several years to say nothing of the added strain of a global health pandemic that has exaggerated seclusion and economic downturn. May marks Mental Health Awareness Month in the United States. This entire month, Millennial Lag is bringing you our first series and it's dedicated to rural and agricultural mental health. You'll learn why we care, how we can help each other, how we can break the stigma, and provide resources to anyone that may need them. We're real, we're raw, we are Millennial Lag.